This is Watch the Media. We come your way from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in the College of Journalism and Mass Communications. I think sometimes there's this idea amongst writers or just the public in general that big stories happen only in big places. You know, we have a zillion books about Manhattan or, you know, Taiwan or whatever, but not a lot of Royal Nebraska's get a lot of attention. Johnny Carson, who grew up in nearby Norfolk, Nebraska, uh, donated to the zoo there in Royal twice over the years. And when he did so, he attached a note, the first time at least, saying that he was donating $55,000 because he wanted rural school children to have the same benefits and opportunities as kids in larger cities. I keep telling people after the election in 2016, I felt like Trump kind of kicked open this door where the media all of a sudden said, oh my God, we forgot about the middle of the country. We forgot about rural places. And all of a sudden there was this like media frenzy to go find these stories from so-called forgotten middle America. One of our outstanding graduates has just written a book, just published a book. I can't say he's just written it because I'm sure it took him more than a day or two. Just published a book titled Zoo Nebraska, The Dismantling of an American Dream. His name is Carson Vaughn, and he is with us today on Watch the Media. Welcome. Thanks so much, John. It was, um, as I've told you on the phone before, it was a, it's a fascinating tale uh, and a story that... Um, I didn't know anything about, even though I grew up 20 miles away in Neely, um, though I didn't live there at that time. But we'll, we'll dissect the story a little bit, and we'll talk about how you wondered upon this story, Zoo, Nebraska. And I, I, I asked this in, intentionally after I read the book. I asked this intentionally of people I know who who have lived in Nebraska for the last 40 years, if they knew anything about Zoo, Nebraska. And I have to tell you, more than half of them had never heard of it. Um, they just uh, had never heard of it. Give us a little overview, if you would, Carson, about what Zoo Nebraska is, and then we'll break it down. Sure. Well, I mean, I should also note that I had never heard of it either until stumbling upon it. But the book um, primarily traces the rise and fall of this small roadside zoo in a town called Royal Nebraska, which is in northeast Nebraska. Um, and so in tracing the rise and fall of the zoo, I was also hoping that it would sort of trace kind of the rise and fall of this community and it would act as hopefully kind of a simulacrum for just small town America or rural America. The goal was kind of if I can drill deep enough into this one specific community, I might be able to find kind of those universal themes in the bedrock beneath it. And so that's kind of what I was aiming for. So all, all full disclosure, I grew up near there, and you grew up in a small town in Nebraska that's bigger than the one I grew up in, but a small town in Nebraska. Uh, did you find generally that you that you met that 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 threshold you were hoping to see? Yeah, I think so. It's interesting. I've gotten that question quite a bit as I've done this book tour the last several months, and in some ways, I think I certainly was attracted to this story because coming from a small town, I felt like I could kind of recognize some of those same characters in Royal. The flip side of that, though, is that I'm from a town called Broken Bow, which is 3,500 people. Royal is 65, so even by small town standards, Royal is still kind of in a league of its own. You know, the difference between Royal 
and Broken Bow kind of felt like the difference between Broken Bow and Lincoln or Omaha. And and Royal has been that way since since I can remember since I knew and I was a really small. We lived in Ewing, which is west of there, and and right. and in Neely, which is south of there, and so it's always been this dinky little place that's tried to to survive. How in the world has it survived? Because you know towns are 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 dying faster than um, than um, than tumbleweed. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Even saying that it's survived kind of feels misleading almost. I mean, it hit its peak population of, I want to say, I I think it was two or 300, and that was in the early 1900s. And basically ever since then, it's been a gradual decline downwards. And so, um, I mean, it's holding on, but that has a limited run. You know, I mean, sadly, I wouldn't expect Royal to still have a population in 30 years. Describe to me what the town looks like. Describe to our listeners what the town looks like. I haven't sure. honestly been there in so long <laughs> that uh, you help me. Describe what it looks like. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess sort of the one iconic thing they have on their horizon is, you know, their one water tower. It's got kind of the silver tin can on top. And that you can see from miles away on Highway 20. So every time I, you know, got off 14 coming down from Ely and turned on to Highway 20. You can see Royal off in the distance because of the water tower. But once you actually get into town, it's literally 0.1 square miles <laughs> that's kind of wedged between the highway and the railroad running on the back end of it. And then you have, I don't know, basically like five or six blocks um, of not fully paved streets that are sort of like gravel streets in between. And, and then you have what used to be the zoo on one end of town and on the other end of town you have the royal one stop which is still running and that's kind of their gas station social hub type of thing and they have a bar in the middle of town it used to be called thirsties um i think it's called something different now but that bar has changed hands a couple times even since i finished reporting the book and as far as i know it still opens at least a couple days a week but uh you know that how long it will stay there remains to be seen so it it hasn't had a high school in a long time, um, and the postal um, it doesn't have a post office either anymore, does it? No, that's right. The high school closed a long time ago, and the post office closed, I want to say, eight or nine years ago now. And so, you know, when you lose the post office, that's kind of one of the last remaining staples of the community. Okay, so now we have a little bit of an idea uh, of what this town looks like. And for about... Let me do the math. Was it more than 20 years for maybe 25 years or close to that? There was something of a zoo um, at one point. It was. It actually looked like a zoo. Um, um, was it about a quarter of a century? Is that how long it lasted? Yeah, I think it was about just over 20 years. It was like 1984 to uh, 2005 is when the great escape happened. And then it took a couple more years for it to kind of flounder and finally fade away. But yeah, a little over twenty years, I think. And there's a there is a, a there is truly a um, an important piece of work being done nearby and has been for a long time. It's called the Ashfall. Um... Yeah, I mean it's an incredible site, the Ashfall fossil beds, and it's it's a huge like first class uh, paleontological site. It's been there. It was discovered, you know, a couple decades ago. National Geographic called it, I think, America's Pompeii. Um, so that attraction is seven miles. Uh, northwest of Royal, and it draws a lot of people. And so when the zoo was up and running, they were certainly trying to attract some people on their way to the fossil beds to stop at the zoo as well. Carson Vaughn is the 
is the author of Zoo Nebraska. I'm John Schrader. This is Watch the Media. It is not my job to endorse books, nor is it my job to sell books. But I will tell you, reread this book, and you will be fascinated by the story. It is both, um, and I'm not pandering, young man, it is both well told, and it's a fascinating tale. Um, and it's a story that most people would not have known anything about. So I, I would implore folks to give it a shot. It's published by Little A Books. All right. Thank so you. how in the world did a young man who um, went to school at the University of Nebraska or grew up in Broken Bow, went to the University of Nebraska, then went to North Carolina for um, graduate school and uh, writing program and does freelance writing for newspapers and magazines, ended up writing a story about a zoo that had long closed before you ever learned about it? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I chalk it up mostly to serendipity. I guess I give the credit to you know, University of Nebraska Lincoln's journalism school and my wife, who was then my girlfriend. I was in between my junior and senior years um, in undergrad, and I was hunting around trying to find um, something that would serve as a suitable journalism honors thesis. And I thought for a while, I had founded the satirical newspaper at UNL called The Daily Air Nebraskan, so I thought I might write uh, you know, just kind of like a long essay on the purpose and goals of satire on a college campus. Um, but then I like I had just started dating uh, this girl. Her name was Melissa Doman. Like I said, now she's my wife. But she went and had me visit her family in her hometown, which is Plainview, Nebraska. And that's about 20 miles from Royal. And so the two of us went up and met her family on the farm. And they showed me around, um, you know, kind of their part of the state. I'm from central Nebraska. That's in northeast Nebraska. And so they were kind of just cruising up and down the back roads, showing me the different communities. And on the way home, we passed um, this little outcropping on Highway 20. I thought it was a farm. It was so small. I didn't even know that it was a community. I mean, there's no stoplights or anything. You just zoom right through it. Um, but my wife kind of just threw her thumb out the window and nonchalantly <laughs> said, oh, hey, that's where Ruben got shot. And I had no idea who Ruben was. I didn't know anything about a shooting. I didn't know that there had ever been a zoo in this town of Royal that I also didn't know existed. <laughs> and so it just immediately triggered all of these questions. And it was kind of strange because for my wife and her family growing up near Royal, the you know the history of the zoo and the escape of these four chimpanzees in 2005 that was all kind of just local history to them it wasn't a big deal but for me it seemed so bizarre that i had to keep kind of digging in and that's how i got started Okay, so you've given a little bit of it away now, the, the escape of four chimpanzees uh, in 2005. And uh, when you start the book, we know that. I mean, we, 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 right. kinda, we, we know that. And, and so you go back and, and, and retrace this entire story. But uh, give us an idea of how in the world four chimpanzees ended up in Royal Nebraska. Well, I mean, the whole zoo got started um, with one baby chimpanzee that the founder of the zoo um, had taken on loan from the St. Louis Zoo. Somehow he received custodianship of this baby chimpanzee. He drove from Lincoln back to his hometown of Royal with an adolescent chimpanzee in the bed of his father's pickup truck, and it kind of snowballed from there. And then, you know, skip forward 12 or 15 years, that original founder of the zoo leaves, 
some new people take over, and this new director manages to get his hands on three more uh, retired entertainment chimpanzees. And so you have the one original chimpanzee, and then you have three more that come in later. So they have this the makings of a little zoo, but we can't go too far, I don't think, without trying to explain who, who the guy is who got Ruben, who, who, who the guy is. His name is Dick Haskin. He dreamed of being um, Diane Fossey's assistant in in Africa. He dreamed of of the world um, uh, being uh, his oyster. And um, he, in, in some senses, I think, can I say this fairly, Carson? He becomes both the protagonist and the the sort of fatal character in in the story. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, that's very fair. That's very accurate. And so, but also, again, in trying to learn the sausage here, trying to learn how the sausage is made, um, it was not easy to get him to tell the story, was it? No, not at all. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, Dick is a central character. He's a pivotal character in this story, both kind of serving as protagonist and antagonist at the same time. And getting him to go on record at all was um, a mammoth task that I had no idea I was facing when I first started this book. Um, I assumed that whoever founded this zoo would be open and willing to talk about it. But then, of course, when I gave it a second thought, it occurred to me, well, why would this guy want to talk about the darkest chapter of his life to a complete stranger? And so, you know, on day one, when I went to interview he was not there. I spoke to his father and interviewed him, but his father kind of warned me, yeah, Dick doesn't really like to talk about When I started leaving voicemails and phone calls to Dick Haskin, he refused to answer any of those. Then I started sending emails and handwritten letters. And, you know, fast forward, ultimately it took me eight years of staying on top of Dick several times a year, checking back in, asking if he'd reconsider for him to finally come around and say, all right, come on out. Let's discuss it. And as far as I know, that was the first and only time that he has uh, granted an interview to anyone to talk about Zoo Nebraska. So how much time did he give you then once you finally got him? Well, it was crazy because once he finally said, yeah, he lives uh, about five miles north of Royal on a really beautiful kind of riverside campground. He lives in just an old farmhouse, but it's right off the Verdigree River. And he allowed me and my wife both actually to come out. We took our old camper trailer with us. And we actually camped out at Dick Haston's backyard on the river for three days. And I just did these sort of long marathon interview sessions with him throughout the weekend. So I would go in, we'd do three hours, take a break. I'd go back to the trailer, say hello to my wife and dog, eat dinner, go back into the farmhouse, interview Dick for another three hours. And so we did that for about two days and he gave me literally everything I had asked for. And um, it was both great for me. And I think in some ways, though I'm sure he wouldn't want to do it again, um, it felt kind of like Dick was going through, uh, it was therapeutic for him. You know, it felt kind of like a therapy session or a some catharsis was happening for him, I think. So how do you think you finally, or how do you know you finally got him to say yes? Well, I think it was probably a combination of things. He did tell me that he had had other friends over the years telling him either to get, you know, go see a therapist or a psychiatrist. And, you know, if that wasn't going to happen, then maybe this journalist who's been asking him for an interview for years, maybe that was his opportunity to kind of release this story. And so I think part of it was just that, he had built up all this pressure for these years and saw me as some tiny little outlet to get some of that off his chest. Um, but if I'm being completely honest, I think probably the bigger reason is that finally eight years in, I sent an email saying, hey, 
I actually sold the book now. It's going to come out, you know, with or without your cooperation at this point. I said, you know, I really don't want this book to come out without you representing yourself, but I am moving forward still. And I think that finally was enough for him to say, all right, come on out. Let's do this. Okay. So you, you've sold the book. You've convinced the, the publishers that this is a fabulous story to write a book about, but you still don't have who, who would turn out to be both your protagonist and your antagonist. Um, so now you, 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 there's probably two people in the world who know more about this story than anybody. You now and Dick Haskin about, yeah. about this story. But once you've done everybody else, once you've interviewed everybody else and done all the rest of your research, then you get Haskin. Is that the way it worked? Yeah, pretty much. And I have to say there were a few other characters, certainly not as central to the story as uh, Dick was, but there were a few other people that refused to talk for that same amount of time and just never did come around. But Dick, I was willing to wait on. You know, it just it felt strange to write a story with a character as large as Dick Haskin and not have him, you know, sort of speaking for himself. But um, yeah, Dick was kind of the last holdout. I had interviewed everyone around him before that. I had interviewed his family and friends. I had interviewed, you know, all these other people at the zoo and just in the community itself. So I did everything that I could think of to keep working while I was waiting on Dick Haskin. Did a lot of the other people involved, um, were they happy to talk about this? Were they pleased to talk about this um, part of the this, 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 this village's history? Right. Uh, it was kind of a mixed bag. I, I felt like in some interviews, people were begrudgingly humoring me. Other interviews um, with like the Jensen family, for example, you could tell that they just loved having a journalist sitting on their couch for hours at a time listening to their stories, you know, and so... Some people were really excited to talk about it. Others wanted nothing to do with it. And some, you know, just eventually got sick of me asking and finally relented. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you mentioned the Jensen family because if, not if, when you read the book, you learn that maybe the Jensen family doesn't come off as much of the protagonist either, do they? No, the Jensens are, again, I mean, it's, I keep telling people that I don't really see any like heroes or villains in this book. I yeah, I agree. Of, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I just see a lot of flawed human beings ultimately. I mean, and that's kind of all of us in general, but the Jensen's were an interesting case because they're certainly villainized in their part of Northeast Nebraska, not even just Royal, but all the small towns around Royal, everybody seems to know the Jensen's and have a very strong opinion about them. Uh, in their defense, the Jensen's have been very litigious over the years. They have been, you know, the Jensen's are a family that like a good controversy. So it made sense that everybody would have an opinion on them. But at the same time, the Jensen's, at least to me, were very open to speaking with me. They were very welcoming to me. And they have been in Royal for a very long time. And they do know their history there. And so, you know, I was happy to listen to their stories, of course, like all my interviews, you have to take what they say with a grain of salt and try to cross-reference that with other people and other sources. But um, they were really critical for me, honestly, in being able to report some of this stuff from Royal. Carson Vaughn is the author of Zoo Nebraska, The Dismantling of an American Dream. I'm John Schrader, and this is Watch the Media. Um, how many people did you end up talking with and over how many years? 
Um, well, I mean, I kept interviewing right up until I sold the book. Even after I sold the book, I did a few more interviews. Um, and so that's, you know, eight years running, just working on the book. And in that time, uh, it's certainly dozens, I would say anywhere from maybe 60 to 80 people. And, you know, a lot of those are just community members, but then a lot of those are, you know, um, speaking to people in the zoo world who might be able to help give some context to things or just, you know, you never quite know when you start the story how far those webs are going to reach outward, and then you start interviewing people that seem very removed but might have one small thing to say about the events that occurred. What was the most surprising thing you learned about this after you started the quest? Well, um, I don't – that's a great question. I think one thing that surprised me, though it didn't hit me all at once, I think it just kind of gradually dawned on me over the years, but – um, just kind of the magnitude of the gravity of Dick Haskins' personal story. You know, like I said, I had already written a whole first draft without Dick's, um, you know, without him agreeing to be interviewed. And so I thought I kind of knew the bones already. But once Dick went on record with me, I realized just how much this one individual had wrapped up in this one idea. And that's when it dawned on me that, you know, there was a very universal story being told through this one man and through this one zoo and this one small town. It made me, especially after Dick went on record with me, it made me even more excited to keep telling this story. I think sometimes there's this idea amongst writers or just the public in general that big stories happen only in big places. You know, we have a zillion books about Manhattan or, you know, Taiwan or whatever, but not a lot of Royal Nebraska's get a lot of attention, you know? And so once I realized just how big Dick's story was, I got really excited to tell a story that came from this place. And what was his reaction to the book? Uh, that, that's a great question. He, obviously it was difficult for him to discuss all of this, but once the book was finished and I had the first copies, I put an, in the mail to him <clears throat> with a note, excuse me, that said, you know, Dick, I'm sure this is going to be difficult for you to read. I don't expect you to read it. I don't even necessarily want you to read it, but you know, I owe it to you for you to see this before the rest of the world does. And he wrote back in an email just a few days before it was published. And he said, you know, as you suspected, this was very hard for me to read Carson, but I think you did a wonderful job with it. And ultimately he kind of gave it his blessing. He said, um, you know, I really love this book. I hope you write another one and I hope I'm not in the next one. <laughs> and I'm sure he won't be right. I don't think there's a zoo Nebraska too, so I think he's in the clear. <laughs> so have the movie have the movie companies called yet? Is Matt is, is Matt Damon ready to star in a movie about a small town zoo yet? Well, not yet, John, but you know, fingers crossed. Yeah, there you go. Your agent will be waiting for those phone calls. That's right. <laughs> yeah, Carson Vaughn is the author of Zoo Nebraska. I'm John Schrader. The zoo starts out with with a chimpanzee, Reuben. And then, as we, as you've already told us, there was a, as a as a breakout of the zoo, uh, the the chimpanzees break out, and that is the is the beginning, of, not the beginning of the end. It's the end. And yeah. um, but but after this, this Reuben and then three other champ, chimpanzees come in here. Then you, then he ends up. They end up with a, a couple of uh, tigers, right? They end up with yeah. some a bear. They, I mean, this was a almost a real zoo, right? Yeah, I mean it. Like I said, it just it really snowballed over the years. Dick Haskin, when he first started this, it was never supposed to be a zoo at all. He was opening what he called the Midwest Primate Research Center 
I think he started kind of the foundation for primate research. You know, he didn't he didn't have the idea of coming back to Royal and starting a little menagerie to charge people to come and look at. You know, he was truly, if naively, interested in the research. Um, unfortunately, people saw him in Northeast Nebraska as this animal guy, and so they would donate animals over the years, and then it kind of became this self-fulfilling prophecy where in order to keep funds to keep the zoo open, he would accept a few more animals to display so that it could charge a little bit more. And it just slowly evolved and got a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And then especially after the new directors stepped in after the year 2000, they, to again, increase their marketing and whatnot, they accepted bigger animals. So they got a couple from Gretna to come in who were kind of wildlife specialists and they donated some Bengal tigers. Um, you know, they eventually got, I think, 12 or 13 wolves on display from a zoo in Grand Island. And, you know, very quickly it became much larger than just one adolescent chimpanzee in a corn crib. And it was never really financially feasible, was it? No. And it's, I mean, it's kind of a miracle. It lasted even 20 some years. I mean, it, it never was a profitable zoo and certainly should have closed down multiple times over the years. One of the great ironies in this story is that Johnny Carson, who grew up in nearby Norfolk, Nebraska, uh, donated to the zoo there in Royal twice over the years. And when he did so, he attached a note, the first time at least, saying that he was donating $55,000 because he wanted rural school children to have the same benefits and opportunities as kids in larger cities. And when he said that, I'm sure he was thinking of places like Omaha, where they have you know, the Henry Dorley Zoo, one of the best in the world. And he thought, well, I'm going to donate $55,000 to this really small town <laughs> and, you know, hope that the kids in that area can see some of the same things. Unfortunately, Johnny Carson had never stepped foot in the zoo there in Royal and had no idea what he was kind of flushing his money into. But without Johnny Carson's donations, the zoo certainly would have folded on multiple occasions. And he was never there. That's right. That we know of, anyway. He was a rather reclusive fellow. That we know of, he never visited. That's right. And even I did ask uh, Dick Haskin if he had ever seen Johnny Carson there, and Dick actually gave me the same response as what you just said. Dick had never seen him, but Johnny Carson may not have identified himself every time he went either. So there's a tiny chance that he walked in, but I highly doubt it. Okay, so Carson, you're a college kid, and you, uh, I'm sorry, a, a young man in college, and, and you're looking for a, an honors thesis piece to write, and you wander upon this zoo in Royal Nebraska that's near uh, the, the hometown of the young lady you've met, and you've met her family, and you end up marrying her later, but how did this honors thesis story at the College of Journalism in Lincoln end up being a book project? Uh, that's a great question. Cause obviously when I started this, I was not thinking I'm going to start writing a book. I think probably originally I just saw it as like maybe a long form magazine piece or something like that. Um, but by the time I graduated, I, I had enough to complete the thesis obviously. Um, but I don't think I had enough to do much else with it. And I think that kind of bugged me. I think my personality is one that wants to see a completed product, you know? Um, and so I had stumbled onto this story. I wanted to be able to wrap up that story completely and I hadn't yet. So then I, you know, enrolled in this master of fine arts program in North Carolina 
um, which was great in that it gave me an extra three years to keep writing and keep researching this story. Obviously, it wasn't the most convenient location. <laughs> I ended up having to get some scholarships and fly back multiple times to keep reporting in Royal. And I took the summers off from North Carolina and came home and did more reporting and all of that. But mostly... I just wanted to see the finished product. But then, you know, again, I was fairly naive going into all this. I had no idea what it would take to then turn that master's thesis into a product that an agent in New York would want to sell for me. So it took me a while to get the agent. Then once I got the agent, it took him years to finally find the right home. So this was a 10-year-long project. Yep, it was. It was a third of my life, which was gross to say when I figured that out, but it's true. How many times then did you... How many times do you think, maybe you counted, how many times did you make trips to Royal? Oh, I didn't count, but I'm sure it was at least 15 to 20. And then, you know, that's not counting all of the like hours long phone calls and that kind of thing I did afterwards. Do you get, um, is this something that one gets ob obsessed with that you just, it, 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 it's in you and it's not going away? Yeah, I mean, that's another <laughs> another big irony of the whole book is that I was chasing the story of this guy who had an obsession that got out of control. And even in my interviews with Dick Haskin over that long weekend, at one point he turned to me and looked with a very serious look in his eye and said, don't let this monster consume you too. And I kind of laughed it off. But then a couple of days later, I was thinking, oh my God, I've put 10 years into chasing this story. <laughs> Maybe the monster got me also. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely grew obsessed with chasing this story and couldn't let it go. Is there another story now uh, roiling around in your head that needs to be chased? You don't have to tell me what it is, but are you? Uh, is there another story now that you're obsessed with? Yeah, certainly there is. Um, in February of 2016, I flew to Elko, Nevada to shadow uh, my second cousin. His name is R.P. Smith, and he's been a big uh, figure in the world of cowboy poetry, of all things. So I went and shattered him for the New Yorker at the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering, thinking that it would be sort of a quick kind of one-off assignment. And I kind of just fell in headfirst into this whole new world, this genre of poetry I knew nothing about. And since then, I've written 10 or 12 articles on cowboy poetry, and I keep going to this gathering every year in Nevada. And I'm, I've grown obsessed <laughs> with this world. Too. So I'm looking into writing a book on that as well. I haven't totally committed yet, but I'm certainly interested. And in the meantime, you make a living as a freelance writer. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I've been freelancing pretty much full time uh, since I graduated from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. So it's interesting you say I've been freelancing full time. How does one <laughs> freelancing seems like it's uh, it's here and there. Uh, how does one uh, freelance full time? How, how, how does how does that work? Explain to us how that happens. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a roller coaster for sure. I mean, the way I started out anyway, is that, you know, I graduated and I immediately just started writing as many pitches as I could every week. And obviously, you know, the first couple of years are rough, it's, especially when you don't have, you know, a name in the industry yet and you're not like a big player getting an editor in New York to answer a random email from some no-name writer in Lincoln or Broken Bone, Nebraska isn't the easiest thing. But you know, you get one good publication and then that leads to an open door at the next publication. And so a couple of years in, I finally got to the point where I could at least pay some rent, you know, and sustain myself. And it's gotten easier over the last couple of years. Still not easy, but easier. Um, and then, you know, 
during those lulls, especially those first couple of years when the stories were slow, I was still chipping away at this book. And so that's how I've been kind of able to cobble it all together. But I mean, it's a roller coaster. Some months are great and others are not so great. <laughs> and all the while, this young lady, Melissa Doman, who becomes your wife, is as patient as uh, as the day is long, right? Yes, she's a true saint. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, you really, I mean, it has to be. She she helped you find the story of your life, and uh, and uh, you end up spending all of this time together. So that's pretty awesome. So, Yeah, it's great. The state of journalism, let's, let's talk a little bit about that, if we, if yeah. we can. Um, because you, you're dabbling in the world, and, and you've written this book, Zoo Nebraska. Uh, it, it's written in a real literary journalism style, uh, which is impressive, especially since it's your first book, and, and, and it's really nicely done in that sense. But you're really a journalist, right? Can I call you a journalist? Right. You're a journalist. Yeah, journalist and author. How about that? Call yeah, you a journalist and great. an author, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and, and so let's talk a little bit about the state of journalism and, and where we're at, because I'm sure even 10, 12 years ago when you were in college and then in an MFA program and, and freelancing, um, the naysayers have told you, oh, my God, you're going to be a, you're a journalist. What are you doing? What in the world are you yeah. thinking? Um, and so why, why do you, why are you so committed to this and why do you believe in it so much? Right. Well, um, it's, I mean, I think part of it honestly goes back to that word obsession. (laughs) Um, I think for me, it's always been when I stumble upon a good story, it takes over completely and being a journalist fit several molds that I fall into a lot. One is I just enjoy the craft of writing in general and journalism allows me to write, but I'm also not great at being a hermit, (laughs) which means I have to get out of my apartment sometimes. And journalism also fills that and that it allows me to go out and do these interviews and digest other people's stories. You know, I'm not a memoirist. I don't want to write a bunch of personal stuff. Um, So I wanted to kind of take the craft or the art of writing and meld that with reportage. And that's, I think, I guess how I became a long form journalist or a narrative nonfiction writer or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so that's why I went into it, but you're right. I mean, I graduated from the journalism college in 2010. My wife graduated from the journalism school in 2009. And, uh, the Dean at the time that my wife graduated at their graduation ceremony, he literally just apologized to the outgoing class and said, I'm sorry you're leaving the journalism school now and entering this weird fractured media landscape that is a much different thing than we started with. And so it was kind of a depressing time to hop into that industry. And I don't think I necessarily consciously thought of this at the time, but I'm sure deciding to do three more years in a master of fine arts program had something to do with the fact that the industry was really struggling then. Unfortunately, I'm not sure if it's really recovered in that amount of time. At some point, I had to enter it anyway, but here we are. And is your wife a journalist? Uh, She was always in advertising, so she's in PR and communications now. Okay, so she's got a real job. That's great. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) There you go. So is, is, 
you talked about writing and, and how much you enjoy writing. We know so many people who are really good reporters who are just tortured by the process of writing. And, and, right. we, and we know really good writers sometimes who are tortured by the process of re- research and, and, and reporting. Um, right. So is, is writing uh, torturous to you? Is it, is it um, you know, explain to me about the process of writing for you. Yeah. Uh, I, it's funny because coming out of sort of the literary background or the master of fine arts world, I always felt kind of like, you know, the black sheep there because so many of those people are in a master of fine arts program because they love the act of like sitting down and just hammering stuff out and holding up forever. I have a very love hate relationship with writing in that when I'm in the, flow you know it feels like the greatest thing in the world you get that writer's high but i will not lie i mean sometimes it feels like torture and you just have to train yourself to sit at the desk anyway and keep going i mean there were multiple times in this book when i would get through a chapter and i would hate it and i would think yeah i'm definitely gonna have to rewrite that thing and eventually i would have to rewrite it but just the act of staying there and looking at the screen you know got me through it so there are some days where I absolutely love it and I'm in the writerly mode and then the next day I'll wake up and just everything I put on the page sounds dumb or I'm very self-critical about it. And so it just comes and goes. Do you need to write every day? Um, no, though. I mean, I end up doing that. I mean, I need to financially, <laughs> um, <laughs> make a living necessarily yeah. morally. <laughs> you know, there are some writers certainly who, uh, feel the compulsion and just have to do it and have to get it out. But I think that's where the reportage end fills in the gaps for me. You know, there are days when I don't have time to be writing because I'm literally on the phone or out in the field doing research, interviewing, talking to people all day, or I'm stuck in the archives doing historical research or, you know, there are other parts of writing that aren't writing. Mm-hmm. Do you write in the morning or at night? Um, both, but typically morning. And I've certainly trained myself. I mean, back in my college days and before, you know, I was always a burning the midnight oil kind of writer. But, um, now that I'm married and have a wife, I try to get my hours to align with hers. So I'll start writing as soon as she leaves the house and try to keep going until she returns. So when you, when you write this process, let's, let's talk about the book again, Zoo Nebraska. Um, yeah. So you write a chapter at a time, right? And how long, is it, how long did it take you, do you think, to refine a chapter? Oh, um, months for most chapters, I would say. Some of the smaller ones or the more straightforward ones you could get through in a couple of weeks maybe. But, you know, like the chimp escape scene, for example, I knew from the very get-go that people – if they picked up this book, they were picking it up, expecting to at some point hit this scene where the chimps escape. And um, though I don't necessarily think this book is about a chimp escape, that's certainly the climax. And so um, getting just all the information necessary to be able to write a scene that kind of felt fictionalized but was not fictional at all (laughs) took forever, not just in the reporting of it and gathering all those facts, but then once I started to write it, I rewrote, you know, the different sections of that chapter so many times trying to keep those sort of cinematic elements alive and keep people, you know, turning the page in there. Because we know in the beginning you have you have a you have a, a county sheriff and a state patrolman in a in a cafe um in Neely, Nebraska, 
and boom, they get a call. So we know something's going to happen. And 250 pages later, we get this dramatic retelling of what happened that you've foretold us uh, in the first two pages uh, of the book. Um, did right. you did you write the whole escape scene long before you got to the end of the book? Did you write all the chapters in order? How does that work? Movies aren't made in order. Are books written in order? Um, probably not every book, but for me, just the easiest way to, I mean, a, a book is such a beast and there's so much material there and just uh, every brain works differently. But the way that mine managed to function throughout all of this, the way I could parse it out the easiest was to at least, I knew that I wanted to at least write the book chronologically. And then if I wanted to, you know, mess with the chronology at all after it was finished, I could do that and kind of repuzzle it and repiece it. But I did write it all the way through chronologically to start. And then, you know, obviously that was sort of one of the big craft questions after I had just all the material was, you know, like I said, people are going to pick up this book and the hook, though not the meat of the story, but the hook of the story is the fact that there is this novelty escape of four chimpanzees in small rural Nebraska. And so I didn't want to pretend that it was going to be a surprise for these chimps to get loose. You know, I mean, that information is on the jacket of the book. I mean, people know that's coming. And so I thought, why make them all wait, give them a little taste of that scene in the beginning, get them hooked, and then explain how we got there. You know, so we start with the escape and then we, we reverse and get right to, you know, when Dick Haskin was born and raised and how this, story got started. Yeah. And so how many people did you have to to talk with, confirm with, uh, to make sure that the retelling of this great escape, and, and I'm not going to say exactly what happened to the chimpanzees, but this great escape from this zoo, you know, how many people did you need to, to help you create that scene and be as accurate as you could be? Yeah. Well, there was several like primary sources that were really critical for me to even get the scene uh, fuller reported. Um, it really helped that the state patrolmen were called to the scene that day because they have to, just as protocol at any crime scene, they have to fill out bullet discharge reports. They have to fill out their own narrative timeline. And then they also have to go and get handwritten witness testimonies from everybody who was at the scene. And so I was able to file a public records request with the Nebraska State Patrol, and that gave me dozens of handwritten uh, witness testimonies that gave me all of the information from the state patrolman. So that was huge. I was also able to get, um, in the beginning, they gave me a redacted version. By the time I finished my reporting, they gave me the full 45-minute uh, dash cam video from the state patrolman's car. And that was huge in terms of you know, then I could digest visually exactly what was happening instead of trying to piece together what somebody else said it looked like. You know, that was a that was sort of firsthand for me. And then on top of that, of course, I went and did interviews years after the fact and tried to find people that were there that day and fill in those gaps. So between what the state patrol gave me and my own interviews, um, you know, certainly again dozens of people and and we got there, but. That I also, you know, in the same way that I wrote the whole book chronologically, I also took that chapter and minute by minute filled in what happened then, who did what, when, what sound was made when I pegged it all to a timeline. So what you did was you, I mean, you literally wrote down, you typed up or whatever you did, you drew it. I don't know how you did it, but you literally created a timeline for this before you started uh, writing a scene. Right. So, you know, like, for example, 
at 11.10, I would have a note that said Trooper Detlefson's cell phone rang at 11.10, you know, and they were the smallest details, but that helped me figure out how I could, again, build cinematically this scene based purely in the information that I'd received. Carson Vaughn is the author of Zoo Nebraska. I'm John Schrader. This is Watch the Media. Did you know all along that you wanted to write it as a narrative journalism book? Did you want that style? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that got me excited to write this. I mean, to be a journalist, I guess, really to begin with. You know, there are books like Friday Night Lights by Buzz Bissinger. Um, even, you know, UNL's Joe Starita does a lot of this kind of writing. And Joe was a professor of mine and actually saw the earliest draft of my thesis. And just th those were the kinds of writers that I grew up with. You know, another Gay Talese was a long-form journalist that I really loved early on. Susan Orlean, all those kinds of writers were doing hardcore, serious reporting, but they were then, you know, reshaping that into this literary form that felt like you were reading a novel. And then Buzz Bissinger provides some words for you for the jacket to help sell your book. How about that, huh? Yeah, I know. I was That was a huge score for me. <laughs> so is this whole process been everything you imagined it would be when you started? Um, yes and no. <laughs> it's such a, I don't know if it was this way for everybody, but you know, reporting, reporting a book for 10 years is just a beast in its own right. Um, but then having a book proposal languish for another four years is its own struggle. You know, I mean, there was a point when I got my agent and he was excited to sell it. And we were, I mean, we were both excited to sell it and then he just couldn't. And so finally, um, I mean, we got close with three big publishers and on the day of the so-called auction, they all dropped away. And so I was heartbroken for a summer that this strange thing kept happening. And finally I shelved it and went on with my life for a year when I didn't think about it too much. And then my agent popped back up one day and said, Hey, are you still interested in selling that book? And then, you know, that, refreshed and re-energized the reporting once again. So it's just been a true roller coaster getting this book finally out into the world. And I don't think when I started, I had any idea what it really takes to see a book through all the way. Now that it's published and it's getting good reviews and it's a good read and people are enjoying it, um, are they calling you now? I mean, I've heard from a lot of readers, which is awesome. Um, you know, I've got 500 some reviews on the Amazon page for it right now. And I was, thankfully, I've grown healthier. I don't read those all every day anymore. <laughs> but it, the first couple of weeks, I was pretty obsessive about checking in and making sure that I was still getting enough star ratings and that, uh, <laughs> you know, people were enjoying the book. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's been really fun to hear from people now that the book is out. And I have to say, I think the most fun is hearing from people who sort of like yourself grew up in the area um, and had no idea either that the zoo ever did existed, or I've heard from a ton of people who have like stellar, fun childhood memories of going to the zoo. And they'll write me and say, oh, I used to love Reuben the chimpanzee. I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes there. And so that's been fun to hear people sort of, you know, think they were familiar with these childhood memories and then find out that they weren't. And then Dick Haskin tells you that, yes, it was painful to read, but basically, young man, you got the story right, right? Yeah, and that was, I think, the most 
satisfying review. In some ways, I don't think the book really felt finished or real to me until Dick finally wrote back and signed off on it. Not that I necessarily needed Dick's approval because I'm, you know, I'm not a publicist. I wasn't there to glorify his life or write a glowing report for him. Um, but to hear him say, you factually reported my story and got it correct in a way that feels correct, even to me, that meant a ton to me. That meant more, I mean, all apologies to Buzz Bissinger. I loved his review too, but to hear it from the main character of the book. How about some of the other folks? That meant the world to me. How about some of the other folks, the the Jensen's and uh, and the gentleman who took over the zoo, who uh, yeah. became a complicated uh, character in the story as well? Right. So I still have not uh, heard from Junior Schluter, though I don't expect to. He was pretty antagonistic with me every time I stopped through Royal and tried to get him to go on the record. He, um, you know, expressed his dissatisfaction with anyone writing about this from the beginning and. Um, the book is out and I'm sure he knows that, but I've not heard from him. <laughs> uh, the Jensen's I have heard from, they, uh, emailed maybe three or four weeks after the book came out and I heard from Justin Jensen, their son, and he really liked it. He actually had me send him another copy of the book. And I've since run into many members of the Jensen's family and extended family at my book readings and different places around Nebraska. They've come and had me sign the books. And actually at my reading in Norfolk at the public library there, I had some in-laws of the Jensen's come and had me sign a few books for their family reunion. They were going to raffle them away. So I think they're pleased with it. Uh, and yeah, so most of the reviews from Royal have been good. And um, I'm sure those in Royal who aren't happy about the book, just haven't said anything. <laughs> well, and, and did you do a reading in Royal? No, but primarily because there's not really a place in Royal to do a reading. I mean, they don't have a library. They don't have a school anymore. Um, Norfolk is the closest I've gotten so far, though I do have a reading set up in O'Neill, Nebraska, here in a couple weeks, and that'll get me pretty close to Royal again. So I'm expecting to run into a few more. Is that the best way to, to, to sell them? I'm sorry, is that the best way to sell the book, uh, is to show up and, and read parts of it? Uh, to be totally honest, no. I mean, that definitely helps me sell some books, but I'm doing that more just... It's satisfying to take the book out and see it, for, see people react to it firsthand. You know, I mean, it's one thing to see the reviews come into Amazon or get a nice email every now and then, but to actually like interact with your readers and answer questions directly... Um, it's just satisfying to me as a writer to see how people have kind of digested the narrative. And, and really when you get down to it as a, as a journalist and, and as an author, as a storyteller, what you want to make sure is that the, all of the characters involved in your story, the reaction is, and I mentioned this earlier too, is that you got the story right, is that yeah. you recrafted this story, you told it fairly, and really that's your job, right? That's your job. And it's right, and that's you know it. It's it's a difficult thing to balance after a while, especially when you're doing long form work. You end up taking so many hours from these people's lives, right? Like I took so much time from Dick Haskin. I took so much time from the Jensens. And at a certain point, you start to feel um, a little bit of an obligation, really, to get their story absolutely right. And then you have these second thoughts of what if I get this wrong and they hate it? You know, you don't want to disappoint them after you've built these relationships. But at the same time, your job isn't to be their friend. And if they did something that was negative, you have to be truthful about that too. 
And so it's been satisfying to me um, that people have been able to read this story and say, you got it right. You know, you, this may not have made me happy here because <laughs> you showed a dark chapter of Royal, but you got that dark chapter right. The junior Schluters of the world, you just can't worry about them, I guess, huh? No, and it's, you know, those are always frustrating because I, in the same way that I reached out to Jake Haskin a million times, I did the same thing with Junior Schluter. You know, I told him, hey, let's, I don't want to leave this up to other people to tell your story. Um, I want you to have every opportunity to represent yourself. And he just never did come around. And so, you know, to fill in his hole, I had to go get, you know, court documents and talk. I talked to his sister for a while and people who knew him, but um, there's just only so much you can do, you know. You certainly, you talked about how it sat there for four years, the proposal for four years. Is that what you said? And uh, yeah, yeah. And, and there was a four year period when it sat there. Um, I, I don't want this to be a negative question, but I want it to be an honest question. Yeah. At, at what point or how many times did you say this isn't going to happen as a book and I got to move on? Um, well, basically there was a summer of that. So once I finished, what I actually did is I, like I said, I had written the whole book, right? So I had a whole first draft. Then I took that and I condensed it down into um, like a 65 page book proposal. Normally with narrative nonfiction and just nonfiction books in general, you sell those based on proposal and not a full manuscript. And so my agent had this 65 page proposal. And as soon as I gave it to him, literally just a few weeks later, he started shopping it around to all the big houses in New York. And three of those big New York publishers in a row expressed interest, said they were ready to put in a bid, and then backed out at the last minute. And all three of those backed out within like a three or four week period. <laughs> and so it was kind of like heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak for a month. And then we kind of felt like we had saturated the market. And I also didn't want to go from selling to, you know, one of the big houses in New York to settling for the smallest academic press, you know, it just mm -hmm. that I'm sure that was kind of ego getting in the way a little bit, but I also just felt like I wasn't in a big enough rush to need to settle that quickly. And so I said, all right, well, you know, I don't need this to come out tomorrow. I'm freelancing full-time anyway, at this point, I'm just going to keep writing and keep selling my magazine work. And hopefully at another point we can try this whole cycle again. And that's ultimately, you know, how it worked. And, and I'm glad I waited in the end, what do you think it was that finally sold the story on the publisher? Uh, that's a great question. I think, it, if I'm being totally honest, um, it was a little bit of the new Trump atmosphere after 2016. You know, there was, I keep telling people, after the election in 2016, I felt like Trump kind of kicked open this door where the media all of a sudden said, oh, my God, we forgot about the middle of the country. We forgot about rural places. And all of a sudden there was this like media frenzy to go find these stories from so-called forgotten middle America. And I think um, as much as I don't want to believe it, I think part of it was that Royal Nebraska itself, because it's a small place. Um, a place most people don't know about involved real working class figures. I think part of it was the publisher saw that as um, something that would be easier to sell 
today than it would have five years ago. Um, you know, books like J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy came out, and I think publishers have been looking for another Hillbilly Elegy ever since then. So I think politics kind of came in and changed a little bit and made it easier to sell. Though I, I would, I will say right now, this is not Hillbilly Elegy. It, that, that's not the same kind of story, but but it's a it's it reaches that audience but but you want people in new york and los angeles and san francisco and chicago to you want the story to resonate with them as much as you want this story to resonate with small town america yeah absolutely and i'm really glad you said that john because that's i mean that's totally true i would not have spent 10 years of my life hyper focused on this tiny little town if i thought it was only going to be relevant to <laughs> people in rural or people in small town nebraska i mean again the reason you search for those universal themes is that you hope to find a universal audience, right? Like I wanted your suit and tie businessman in Manhattan to also be able to relate to some of the characters in this book in the same way that a small town, say farmer or ranch hand or farm hand could also recognize people in this community. The book is titled Zoo Nebraska, the dismantling of an American dream. Carson Vaughn is the author one more couple of maybe one or two more little things. The dismantling of an American dream. How valuable is that to the title? And what do you want that to say to someone who picks up the book? Um, we There's some very specific language in the subtitle, actually. You notice we didn't say the dismantling of the American dream. We did that on purpose because I was afraid of being... Um, too prescriptive or generalizing about this. I think there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction right now to say that whatever happens in small-town America is, you know, directly reflective of every other small town in America. But small towns, of course, aren't monolithic. Um, and so that was part of it. Obviously, especially after I got Dick to go on record, I realized just how big of a role he played in this story and Dick's story um, in some ways, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to it because he had these huge dreams and he followed them, right? The issue with Dick's dream, of course, is that he shot for the moon and fell a little bit short of that, and that twisted itself into a, you know, a, a tragedy. And um, so mostly we wanted to tap into the idea that this is something that a lot of people could relate to, but on the other hand, wasn't completely prescriptive and generalizing of the American dream. So the next story is uh, that we're going to read is about um, poetry, cowboy poetry. Is that the next book that's in the works? Well, uh, fingers <laughs> crossed, unless I run into another royal along the way. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, I, again, I enjoyed the book very much, and not just because I grew up down the, the way, not because I grew up in a small town in Nebraska. Those are, those are facts. But because it is a really resonant story about human beings you can relate to, um, the, the, the tragedy of dreams unmet, unmet uh, as you say, we shot for the moon and fell considerably short. And uh, so I think you hit the mark and congratulations. Uh, uh, good job. Well, thank you very much, Sean. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the conversation. Carson Vaughn is the author of Zoo Nebraska, The Dismantling of the American Dream, published by Little A Books. He's been with us today on Watch the Media. I'm John Schrader.